Today on Against the Grain, at a time when media ownership was held in a few hands, right-wing press barons combined celebrity coverage with xenophobic and nationalist politics, lauding authoritarian leaders and playing down the threat of fascism. In the lead-up to World War II, the likes of William Randolph Hearst and Robert McCormick in the United States and Lords Rothermere and Beaverbrook in the UK flirted with fascism and promoted imperialism. Historian Catherine Olmsted argues that they paved the way for far-right mass media today. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the 1930s, the owners of the most powerful newspapers in the U.S. and Britain promoted far-right, xenophobic politics married to sensationalism. These press lords, as Catherine Olmsted put it, trafficked in populist slogans but lived like kings. Some were overt sympathizers with fascism, while the others advocated neutrality with Hitler, focusing instead on imperial ambitions in other parts of the world. Olmsted is professor of history at UC Davis and has written The Newspaper Axis, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler, which is published by Yale University Press. She argues that far-right media today has its roots in these owners' publications. Catherine, can you start by telling us who these six newspaper barons were, and what was the reach of their papers in the 1930s? Well, collectively, they reached uh, more than 50 million readers in the U.S. and the U.K., and they were the uh, biggest newspaper publishers in their respective countries. Their, Their papers were the most popular newspapers in their respective countries. Uh, first of all, in Britain, there was uh, Lord Harold Rothermere, who owned the Daily Mail, which in the 1930s was the most popular, the best-selling newspaper in the world. Um, he was uh, an extremely conservative uh, newspaper publisher and uh, even pro-fascist, quite enthusiastic about Hitler. Uh, then also in Britain, there was Lord Max Beaverbrook, the owner of the London Daily Express, which by the mid-1930s had overtaken the mail to be the most popular newspaper in the world. Uh, then in the United States, I look at William Randolph Hearst, who was arguably the most influential media figure of all time. He owned 28 different newspapers at his peak and uh as well as uh, a movie theater, a movie studio and newsreel company and many magazines. And he reached 30 million readers every day. And then there were three cousins, uh, Robert McCormick, who owned the Chicago Tribune, which was the most popular full-size newspaper in the country, and his cousins, Joe Patterson, who owned the tabloid, the New York Daily News, which was the most popular newspaper in the United States. And then uh, Patterson's sister, Sissy Patterson, who owned the Washington Times Herald, which was the most popular newspaper in Washington, D.C. And can you give us a sense of the degree to which these newspaper barons in the 1930s actively opposed opposition to fascism in Europe? Obviously, as you document in the newspaper access, their reactions were not uniform, but were of a piece. Yes, they were all uh, determined to keep their governments from intervening in Europe uh, to stop their governments from standing up to Hitler's aggression. And there was a a spectrum of reasons for that. In Rothermere's case, he was actually pro-fascist. He supported the British Union of Fascists for a time, and he was quite friendly with Hitler and wrote very uh, admiring stories about Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, Lord Max Beaverbrook was not pro-fascist, but he was very, very determined to be isolated from Europe. He was 
uh, an imperialist, but he also called himself an isolationist and that he believed that the that Britain should have nothing to do with what happened on the continent of Europe. It had nothing to do with Britain. Uh, and then in the U.S., uh, there was William Randolph Hearst, who for a time uh, was accused of being fascist, who published uh, articles by Hitler in his newspapers. By the mid-30s, he wasn't overtly fascist, but he was certainly uh, determined to be an isolationist. And the, the Patterson-McCormicks also were uh, used their newspapers to harangue President Roosevelt and tell him that he should be very careful to not do anything that could embroil the United States in European affairs. Were these uh, press barons anti-militarist or were they just against military interventions against fascism? That's a very astute point. They were just against military interventions against fascism. Uh, the British uh, press lords that I study were extremely pro-empire and were very much uh, in favor of the, U of the British government using its military power to maintain and expand the British empire. And the American press barons were perfectly fine with U.S. military power being extended into Latin America and even sometimes into Asia. They just did not want the U.S. to intervene against fascists in Europe. Can you tell us about this term isolationism? In some sense, these press barons could be branded isolationist in that they oppose some kind of military intervention, at least in a particular set of circumstances. And yet, uh, as you know, the term isolationist has become kind of a fraught one, sort of hard to understand, because obviously there are people who, across the spectrum of politics, who might oppose military intervention. You know, you can think of in the 1930s, there was obviously a strong pacifist movement, including on the left. Right, exactly. So because the term is so fraught, there are many historians who don't like to use it anymore, and they prefer the term anti-interventionist or the term neutralist uh, in order to capture the, uh, the, the broad spectrum of opposition to intervention in World War II. Uh, but I believe that perhaps historians have... have um, overcompensated here uh, in trying to abandon the, the term isolationism because these press lords were very, or most of them were very proud isolationists. They used the term themselves and uh, they understood that what it meant was that they wanted to be isolated from Europe, uh, not that they believed that the U.S. should be isolated from all the rest of the world. What role did anti-communism play in the perspectives of media owners like William Randolph Hearst um, and Lord Beaverbrook, the owners of, as you're listing off, some of the most popular mass media newspapers in the 1930s? Well, again, there's a, there's a spectrum here among the press lords that I look at. Uh, it, anti-communism was essential to understanding Lord Rothermere's embrace of fascism. He was terrified that there would be some sort of uh, red tide washing over Europe that would eventually get to Britain. And so he saw uh, Hitler as a, as, a, as a bulwark against Soviet communism. So his anti-communism led him to fascism. Uh, for William Randolph Hearst, uh, Hearst was also intensely anti-communist, very worried about what he saw as the domestic communist threat in the United States. And so he also uh, had some sympathy for the fascists because they were standing up to communism. Uh, the, the other press words weren't, uh, anti-communism wasn't as essential to their worldview, but certainly uh, they understood the conflict in Europe as a conflict between communists and anti-communists, which made them more sympathetic to the fascist worldview. What you do note is that cutting across all of these media owners was a deep concern of a xenophobic sort, that race was at the forefront 
of their minds and also very much how they framed their articles and attempted to get readership. Can you tell us about that dimension of their outlook and their publications? Well, I think part of the reason that these newspapers were so popular were that they figured out that uh, nationalism sold, uh, the, the owners figured out that, that nationalism sold copies, that uh, many people wanted to buy newspapers in both Britain and the United States, that, uh, you know, presented a very uh, nationalistic, xenophobic view of the world. And Hearst figured this out in the 1890s with the Spanish-American War. Uh, Rothermere's uh, brother, Lord uh, Northcliffe, figured this out in the 1890s with the, with the Boer War in uh, Britain, in South Africa. And so they, because nationalism sold copies, these newspapers got increasingly um, uh, strident in the terms that they used to describe foreigners and to describe what they believed was the necessity of Britain or America uh, ex expanding, extending uh, its power in the world. Right. And it seems that for some of them, this America first or Britain first orientation, the reason um, or part of the reason fueling their opposition to confronting fascism was tied up to these sort of hyper-nationalist um, xenophobic ideas about the place of their countries in the world and particularly their empires in the world. I wonder if you could tell us more about that. You know, it wasn't an argument the United States shouldn't be exercising its power around the world, but there was a fear of the United States getting caught up in a conflict in Europe with people of a similar race uh, when it instead sort of uh, bolstering up its empire as it exists made much more sense to them. Yes, and this is definitely a theme in all uh, six uh, prosperance that I looked at. Their concern that uh, the U.S. should not go to war. Uh, they 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 define the United States as an Anglo-Saxon country, although or the or the uh, Great Britain as an Anglo-Saxon country, although obviously that was not true even at the time. But that's how they saw their nations, and they were afraid that if their Anglo-Saxon country went to war with another Anglo-Saxon country, that this would uh, lead to the destruction of the white race. And uh, the New York Daily News was especially, um, perhaps of all of the newspapers, the most explicit about this, that that uh, the white, white race would destroy itself in this internal intra-race war and meanwhile, the so-called yellow race would then take over the world. And this was one of the reasons that the Daily News cited over and over again that the U.S. should not go to war with the Nazis. I'm speaking with historian Catherine Olmsted. She's the author of The Newspaper Axis, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler, which is published by Yale University Press. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Did the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor change the isolationist orientations of these press barons as fixated as they were toward Europe? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it did sort of um, change uh, Hearst's point of view. He was still very critical of the British, and he believed that they weren't doing enough to win the war. But otherwise, he he was very uh, believed in waving the flag during the war. What's interesting, though, is if you read the New York Daily News, which actually gains circulation during World War II to be, and uh, remains uh, the, the most popular uh, newspaper in the United States, is that the, the Daily News is continually criticizing the Roosevelt administration for its conduct of the war and criticizing uh, the Soviets for not fighting the war um, uh, with sufficient vigor, criticizing the British, um, and being so anti-Roosevelt and anti-U.S. government during the war that the Nazi propagandists actually read New York Daily News editorials on their uh, propaganda shows. 
And that leads me to the question, how did these press barons relate to, even though this is not the focus of your book, the ones in the United States, how did they relate to U.S. domestic politics? Because it seems like there was a range, especially within the the trio of the three cousins, uh, as to how they viewed Roosevelt and the New Deal. Right. Well, uh, Robert McCormick of the Chicago Tribune was extremely conservative. He was a traditional conservative and that he was very upfront that he uh, thought that hierarchies of, of race and class and gender were what uh, made America great. And he did not want to disturb those hierarchies. So though he, um, you know, initially didn't attack the New Deal, and by initially, I mean like the first couple of weeks, he soon uh, turned against Roosevelt and was uh, an inveterate Roosevelt hater uh, from mid-1933 on. Um, Joe Patterson was a rare newspaper owner for those days and that he actually supported the New Deal, um, at least some aspects of the New Deal through the 1930s and even sort of reluctantly endorsed Roosevelt in the 1940 election for a third term and then uh, broke with Roosevelt over foreign policy. He believed that Roosevelt was much too anti-fascist, much too pro-intervention, and he began to believe, like his cousin, that Roosevelt was um, advocating these foreign policies not because he was a sincere anti-fascist or because he sincerely believed that the U.S. was in danger from from, uh, German expansion, but because Roosevelt just wanted a war so that he could become dictator. And uh, the Daily News started predicting that Roosevelt was going to... um, uh, rig elections, get a, uh, himself appointed dictator, and then never hold any elections again. They even predicted that once he um, got himself dictator during the war, he was going to appoint one of his sons as his successor. So they, they uh, by the war, the McCormick-Patterson paper certainly could not be more opposed to uh, Roosevelt and his domestic and foreign policies. And what about Hearst? I mean, you mentioned that he might be best described as the most powerful media figure in the United States. And I wonder if you could talk more about his reach and his power and what has come to be known about his dealings in the 1930s as it relates to the right and the fascist right. Right. There's still a lot that we don't know precisely about uh, Hearst's dealings with the Nazis. Um, He did definitely have a deal with the the Nazi film production company, the the state-owned film production company in the 1930s, um, where his newsreel company, Hearst Newsreel Company, swapped film footage with the Nazi uh, film company so that they would show... Hearst uh, newsreels in Germany, and Hearst would show footage that was shot by the Nazis in his newsreels in the United States. And so as a result, for um, coverage of some of the biggest events of the 1930s, including Hitler's invasions of other countries, people who were watching Hearst newsreels in the United States saw footage that had been shot by the Nazis. Um, so we know he had this arrangement. You know, there were rumors at the time, um, some of which were published at the time, that said that he had actually accepted a bribe uh, from the Nazis, uh, and that in return for them allowing his uh, films and newsreels to be distributed in Nazi Germany, um, and in return for a payoff he agreed to um, distribute Nazi propaganda in the United States. Now, for that, we haven't found, uh, you know, smoking gun archival evidence yet, but it was uh, widely believed at the time that he had been paid off by the Nazis. As far as his attitudes towards Franklin Roosevelt, he started out being a big Roosevelt fan. Um, It was the Hearst um, production company that made the movie Gabriel over the White House, which debuted in in March of 1933. 
uh, really valorized a, a Roosevelt-type president and suggested that that the president needed to come in and assume dictatorial powers in order to take the United States out of the Depression. And, and Hearst was very much in favor of Roosevelt for about a year. And then by 1934, he started turning against Roosevelt because he thought Roosevelt was too pro-union. Um, and he was especially disgusted with Roosevelt's um, National Industrial Recovery Act and the Section 7A that gave government protection to the right to join a union. So Hearst at that point then began to believe that Roosevelt was influenced by communists and and he used uh, all the power at his disposal to attack Roosevelt's domestic and foreign policies from that point on. This is a difficult question to answer, but how can we sort of assess the harm that these six press barons did to the struggle against fascism in the 1930s and then perhaps even into World War II. How do you quantify that? It's really hard to quantify, but I would say that if you can imagine a world in which uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the United States, say, was facing a media environment that was calling attention to the dangers of fascism uh, and suggesting um, the threat, running stories about the threat that Hitler posed to his neighbors and the dangers to the United States by Hitler's invasions of other countries, then you can imagine that Roosevelt would have had uh, an easier time uh, confronting Hitler or convincing Congress to pass anti-fascist laws earlier than he did. And similarly in, in the UK, if instead of the British press supporting appeasement, the British press had thrown its support to anti-Nazi figures, then it would, uh, it would mean that the British government uh, would have confronted Hitler earlier and perhaps uh, gone to war over uh, the Sudetenland instead of allowing Hitler to start gobbling up Czechoslovakia and then getting so many more uh, resources that he could use in his uh, later campaign against the British themselves. You note in the newspaper Axis that there are some who might say, well, these publications were anti-intellectual. They wouldn't have been read by the elites who would be reading the more quality press, right? Those who would be influencing elite opinion. How uh, significant would the influence therefore be on the politics of those in power by disseminating such opposition to confronting fascism through these mass daily papers? Well, I think historians in general, uh, in the United States at least, have privileged uh, respectable conservative voices over the uh, far-right xenophobes that are represented in these, in these newspapers. And uh, as a result, historians who are writing about the media environment, the press culture of the 1930s, uh, they uh, read the respectable newspapers, the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune, which were quite internationalist. And they therefore present that as uh, the, the, the media environment of the 1930s, when in fact far more people were reading William Randolph Hearst, Joe Patterson, Robert McCormick. And uh, yes, they were reading these newspapers for the, for the sports and for the comics, but they were also reading these newspapers because they agreed with their right-wing populist message, their uh, nationalist conservative message. And I think if we dismiss those newspapers and say, well, nobody important read them, uh, we don't really understand the degree to which um, the ordinary people of the United States were conditioned to interpret the events in Europe in the late 1930s. I'd also say that, that Franklin Roosevelt certainly thought that these newspapers were important, and, and he read at least a dozen newspapers every day, including 
uh, the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Times Herald and a, and a Hearst newspaper. He understood that in order to um, to be a successful politician in that era, he had to understand what most of the ordinary Americans in the in uh, were reading at the time. You mentioned a moment ago that how historians have tended to focus on the so-called quality press, the the press that's made for a more elite readership. How much do you think that was influenced by what has been available and how much of it is sort of ideological orientation? Because even though these newspapers were widely circulated, their archiving and accessibility has been limited until recently. Yes, I think that's another factor. I mean, I think part of it is that, uh, you know, historians today, they they read um, the New York Times or they read the, 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 the Guardian in the UK and they think, oh, nobody reads the Daily Mail. You know, what do I care what these uh, tabloids have to say? Or I'm not going to watch Tucker Carlson. That's ridiculous. Um, when in fact, the Daily Mail and Tucker Carlson's of the world, they have a huge influence on the way ordinary people in, in those countries see the world. So I think part of it is just like um, a natural elitism of intellectuals to look for sources that... Um, uh, speak in the language that you understand, even if you don't agree with their their political biases. Um, and then also, though, there is the accessibility issue, so that the New York Times has been available for a very long time on uh, ProQuest uh, database. The Chicago Tribune, too, so people do cite the Chicago Tribune. Uh, but the Tribune, as I say, was a more sort of traditional conservative newspaper. It was anti-interventionist. Uh, it was isolationist, but it was... Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't shout at the readers the way the Hearst newspapers did or the, the New York Daily News did. And the New York Daily News and the Hearst newspapers were very hard to get. You had to um, go to a library that had them and sit at the microfilm machine and, you know, just trawl through those those microphone uh, mar- microfilm reels and it would take forever and it would, you know, give you a headache. And I think understandably people didn't want to do that for months and months and months. And it's just recently that they've become uh, available um, on newspapers.com. I mean, when I started this project, I was had to read the, the Hearst newspapers on microfilm and uh, the New York Daily News, I had to go to New York City to read it on microfilm. And the library was only open. This is even before pandemic. You can only get the machine for two hours a day. It was very difficult to do systematic research into these populist uh, newspapers. And now it's, of course, much easier. And not only can you uh, you know, read them at your computer at home, but you can uh, search for keywords so that you can instantly find these horrifying articles that uh, people have forgotten about over the years. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with Catherine Olmsted about her book, The Newspaper Axis, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler. That's published by Yale University Press. You can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. She's professor of history at UC Davis and also the author of Right Out of California. So I wanted to ask you about reporting from these mass circulation publications that were resistant to opposing fascism, that were actively campaigning for Britain and the U.S. not to become involved in conflicts with Germany and Italy. Robert McCormick, who you noted was particularly reactionary, as they related to state secrets during World War II. Yes, uh, McCormick was uh, twice uh, accused of espionage or treason by the Roosevelt administration. He was never actually charged, but he did uh, make a couple of really, uh, you could say bold, or you could say very questionable, ethically questionable decisions to print secret documents. Um, First of all, right before Pearl Harbor on December 4th, 1941, uh, McCormick's Chicago Tribune um, published a story that was the leak of a secret document they had received uh, from a, an isolationist in the military. Uh, the military's war plan for Europe. 
you know, like they're always gaming out and they were always gaming out. If we go to war with Germany, then how, what would it look like? What kind of troops would we need? How would we get them there? It was the, the war plan for Europe and it was leaked to the Chicago Tribune. The Chicago Tribune splashed it across the front page, uh, biggest headline they'd ever used, FDR's war plans. And they portrayed it as uh, evidence that the Roosevelt administration was secretly trying to get the U.S. into the war in Europe, when in fact it was just a, the kind of contingency plan they had for all areas of the world. And then there was a, there was another incident uh, during the war in 1942, uh, right after the Battle of Midway. Uh, which the U.S. won, and it won in part because um, the cryptographers, U.S. cryptographers, had uh, deciphered, had broken the the Japanese naval code, so they knew where the Japanese ships were going to be at the Battle of Midway. And of course, they didn't want the Japanese to know this, but uh, one of the Chicago Tribune reporters found it out and wrote a story saying that the U.S. knew where the Japanese ships were going to be. He did not say in the story it was because the code had been broken, but the Navy worried, understandably, that the Japanese would read the story and then know that their codes had been broken. So uh, they actually impaneled a grand jury and were considering charging McCormick and the reporter and the Chicago Tribune with violating the Espionage Act. But they um, ultimately dropped the case. The grand jury dismissed it because the Navy gave up because it turned out the Japanese had not read the Chicago Tribune that day. And so they, they didn't know uh, about the story and they didn't change their codes. So rather than call attention to this story, uh, they, they dropped it. Robert McCormick was also involved in a kind of revisionist history of Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor and the role that the Roosevelt administration played in, I guess, effectively turning a blind eye. What was that, the theory that was proffered? Right, well, the Chicago Tribune uh, published the very first Pearl Harbor conspiracy theories. Uh, by a reporter named John T. Flynn, who was uh, extremely anti-Roosevelt and active in America First. Um, Flynn had uh, come to believe, along with a lot of other isolationists during World War II, uh, that the uh, U.S. had been tricked into the war and that there had been some sort of deception at Pearl Harbor, that in fact Roosevelt had uh, either orchestrated the attack on Pearl Harbor or had known that it was coming and deliberately withheld this information from the Pearl Harbor commanders so that there would be this dramatic attack that he could then use to get the U.S. into the war with Japan and eventually Germany. And uh, Flynn published the first article suggesting this uh, during the war. And then uh, immediately after uh, the Japanese surrender, the Chicago Tribune in uh, September of 1945 ran a big story by Flynn um, alleging that there was uh, Roosevelt foreknowledge of the attack uh, at, at Pearl Harbor. And the story inspired a congressional investigation into uh, the alleged intelligence failure or alleged conspiracy uh, that uh, had led to the Pearl Harbor attack. Was there any fallout for these six media moguls of their either fascist sympathies or America first, Britain first kind of imperialist politics that rejected confronting fascism? Was there any kind of fallout for them from the general public during World War II or after World War II? Well, that's an interesting question. It, it sort of varies from individual to individual. Uh, Lord Rothermere, who was the most uh, pro-fascist, uh, was very concerned that he might even be interned in Britain. And so he was able, with his the help of his friend Lord Brevebrook, to get out of the country in 1940 and go on a mission to uh, the United States and Canada. And he died in 1940. So he never really had to uh, face up to criticism of his uh, years as a fascist. 
Uh, Lord Beaverbrook had a very interesting story where he had been this appeaser uh, for years, even through the first year of World War II. But then when Winston Churchill became prime minister in May of 1940, he made Beaverbrook his uh, minister of aircraft production and Beaverbrook sort of threw all of his energy into that um, area and became a national war hero. So he went from being an appeaser to a hero. Um, in the U.S., uh, Hearst initially suffered some um, uh, circulation decline because of a lot of boycotts and the perception that he was a fascist. And uh, he did have to declare partial bankruptcy in 1937 and reorganize his affairs in part because there was this uh, political backlash against him, uh, though he did recover. And uh, perhaps in the U.S., the most interesting and perhaps frightening cases is Joe Patterson, who didn't suffer any consequences at all in terms of his uh, pocketbook. The Daily News just grew in size and circulation during World War II, as uh, it turned out that his particular kind of angry populism was pop was uh, you know resonated with a lot of readers even during World War II itself. Looking back with the information that historians have now, to what degree did these media barons work together purposefully, um, including across the Atlantic, in their opposition to fighting fascism? Well, the most interesting story, I think, is the cooperation between Lord Beaverbrook and Joe Patterson of the Daily News. So Beaverbrook owned the Daily Express, the biggest newspaper in, in Britain, and he claimed the world. And Joe Patterson owned uh, the New York Daily News, the most popular newspaper in America. And they started corresponding in 1935 to just sort of exchange ideas about building circulation. And Patterson, in his letter to Beaverbrook on you know, on other issues, said, wow, I really hope we don't go to war against the Nazis. I hope that saner minds prevail in both of our countries. And Beaverbrook got very excited and said, can I print that on my front page? So he printed part of Patterson's letter, the isolationist part, on the front page of the Daily Express. And then he spent lots of money to turn uh Patterson's letter into a pamphlet, a pro-isolationist pamphlet called From Across the Atlantic that argued for Anglo-American cooperation in isolationism, that the Anglo-American world should work together to make sure that their governments did not get involved in European politics. And Beaverbrook paid to have one of these flyers delivered to every family in Great Britain. So more than 10 million uh, pamphlets. And meanwhile, he kept printing Patterson's uh, isolationist declarations on the front page of the Daily Express. So then Daily Express writers, uh, readers then wrote to the New York Daily News about how much they appreciated American isolationism, and Patterson then ran those letters in his newspaper, and then the Daily Express did a story about how the New York Daily News was excited about Daily Express readers being isolationists too, and they basically created this, this echo chamber as they uh, celebrated one another for uh, upholding the Anglo-American isolationist cause on both sides of the pond. Historian Catherine Olmsted is my guest. We're discussing the newspaper Axis, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Catherine, we've been talking a lot about the content of these mass circulation newspapers in the 1930s, but I wanted to ask you about their style. In the 19th century, newspapers tended to be funded by political parties or by wealthy benefactors. But in the 20th century, the funding model changed and came to be based around advertising. How did that funding model affect the kind of reporting, if we can call it that, that these press barons oversaw? Well, if you're funded by advertisers, obviously the most important thing is to get uh, as many eyeballs as possible on your newspaper so that you can tell the advertisers, I am reaching this many uh, people. 
So uh, starting really in the 1890s, as this funding model uh, began to prove its value, uh, starting in London and then coming over to the U.S., newspaper publishers realized that they just needed to grab the attention of readers. So the advertising funding meant that they could lower the, the cost of the newspaper so that it would be very cheap even for a working class person to buy every day, sold them on street corners with child labor, uh, the newsboys selling the newspapers to busy commuters as they passed. Um, the tabloid format became more and more popular because you could open it up and read it on the subway or the trolley. Most important, these newspaper publishers wanted to have the kind of content that appealed to these busy commuters. So instead of having the very dense gray columns of the 19th century, they started having a lot more white space. They had started having much bigger headlines, uh, a lot of pictures, and then content, sex, you know, sex scandals, um, and uh, corruption, gangland shootings, murder, crime, uh, and sports, comics, all sorts of these things that they used in order to get more readers to to uh, buy their newspapers. And Hearst in particular was one of the, the pioneers of this. Of course, it became known as yellow journalism uh, starting in the Spanish-American War um, because he was great at figuring out what... Uh, the sort of gee whiz model of journalism. He wanted people to pick up the newspapers and say, oh boy, gee whiz, oh my gosh, as they as they thrum, thumb through the paper. And what he discovered in terms of politics is that, uh, you know, the best way to uh, attract these readers was to be extremely nationalist, especially in times of war, like the Spanish-American War, but uh, just in general about the greatness of the United States. Right, and you write the sort of us versus them framing of politics seem to be particularly effective at increasing readership. You also mentioned that in this model, these press barons took a lot of liberties with the content of what they were writing about in order to either get through the points or politics that they wanted or to sell papers. Can you talk about the liberty with the truth that was an uh, important part of this sensationalist type of newspaper production. Yes, I mean, part of the reason that these press barons were looked down on by the prestige press at the time is that they uh, were not very ethical. Uh, by the early 20th century, papers like the New York Times were uh, following the new norms of objective journalism, where you tried to get both sides of the truth and, and help the readers find the truth. You wouldn't deliberately lie. If you made a mistake, you would correct it. That's what the, the code for American journalists had become by certainly the 1920s. Uh, but the Hearst and McCormick uh, journalists did not always follow those norms, uh, to say the least. And as a result, they were looked down on by other journalists, but they still, you know, sold a lot of copies. So Hearst famously during the Spanish-American War, he staged this rescue of a Cuban woman, what well, was actually before the United States got involved in the Spanish-American War, just when it was a Spanish-Cuban War. He had his newspaper go down and allegedly uh, jailbreak a Cuban woman and bring her back to the United States because she was in danger of being assaulted by the Spanish guards. It was a vastly exaggerated story. They they bribed the guards. They didn't actually break her out of prison, but they made up the story. It sold a lot of copies. They brought her to New York and had all kinds of balls and parades in her honor. And, uh, you know, he figured out that sort of thing worked. Uh, McCormick was doing fake news really into the 1930s, um, and he ran some stories about the Roosevelt administration that either severely bent the truth and sometimes were just outright fabrications uh, because he hated the New Deal so much and he wanted to get that across, and if the facts wouldn't fit, he just invented new facts. One of the things that these media owners would engage in 
was promoting the consumerist lifestyles of the rich and famous, which happened to include themselves. Yes, this was especially true for Hearst, of course. Hearst had, uh, most famously, Hearst Castle, um, a 115-room mansion on the California coast to which she would bring Hollywood stars for big parties every weekend. Um, He also had the biggest apartment in in New York City. He had um, a castle in Wales. He had uh, spread on the beach in Santa Monica. Uh, He bought European art. He bought, uh, you know, Dutch masters. He bought Italian fountains. He bought a Spanish monastery and broke it into 10,000 pieces and brought it back to the United States. And uh, he would then have his newspapers cover his rich and famous lifestyle. So he was not only selling his newspapers, he was selling himself as a, as an exceptionally successful American businessman who um, the readers could aspire to have a lifestyle like William Randolph Hearst. You write that although not all of the sensationalist papers of the time leaned right, that many of the dimensions of what characterized those papers tended to uh, skew right, and that was sort of a focus on individuals, of big personalities, consumption, and nationalism. And I wanted to ask you, you know, in many ways, the description of this kind of combination of sensationalism, focus on celebrities and consumer lifestyles with right-wing politics, this is obviously very recognizable today. Uh, not just in the U.S., but also in the U.K., where you have these right-wing tabloids that are full of celebrities and right-wing politics. When you think of these mass circulation publications in the 1930s and think about at least some of the offerings in the media system now, how much continuity and discontinuity do you see? I see a lot of continuity. I think that this uh, book tells an origin story. Uh, about the right-wing media that we live with today. Uh, Particularly recently, we can see that the right-wing media's embrace of authoritarian dictators, uh, that uh, embrace, that has deep roots in the past. Uh, And we can look to that period to see sort of like the primordial Fox News and this right-wing media obsession with, as you said, individualism, with consumption, but also authoritarian politics and uh, populist nationalism. Do you think there are also lessons from this story to do with mass media owned by a few powerful individuals? I mean, obviously you also have mass media in the US owned by uh, not just a few powerful individuals, but hedge funds. But do you think there is uh, something to be drawn here about lessons around the ownership of media itself? Well, certainly in that era, it was very expensive. Uh, It took a lot of capital to start a newspaper, so much so that by the 1930s, it's basically impossible unless you're one of the richest people in the country to start a new newspaper. So uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a license to, to print money in the 1930s to own a newspaper. It generates a lot of money and it requires a lot of money. So it's only the wealthiest people in the country who own these newspapers. And of course, most of them have right-wing politics. And uh, the frightening thing is that it is not only, this is not only uh, entertainment for people, it's also how ordinary Americans get their news is from these very wealthy individuals who use their media outlets to uh, spread their conservative or reactionary or sometimes even pro-fascist views. The argument sometimes made that the reason we have the kind of celebrity-fueled journalism that we do is because that's what the public wants, and that if you want to have a mass readership, you need to give the public what they want. And I wondered if looking at the 1930s and looking at uh, media now, if that is a, a fair argument 
that these publications are, are just giving the audience what they want to read. I'm not sure that in the 1930s that the mass public wanted to read nice stories about Hitler and the Nazis or that they wanted to read that the Nazis didn't pose a threat to the rest of Europeans. I think that was something that was uh, pushed on them by the owners of the newspapers that they read and they read those newspapers for other reasons. It's just sort of like they got the right-wing propaganda was slipped in with the sports and the, and the comics and the columnists that they like to read. And so I, I don't think that necessarily that's the politics that people wanted. Perhaps they did want nationalism, but you know, you can have a kind of civic nationalism that is not uh, racist and imperialist and oppressive. And uh, unfortunately, the media barons of the 1930s, their vision of nationalism was a racial nationalism. It was a nationalism about the superiority, superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race and the dangers of other races. And this somehow made the United States uh, Hitler's natu natural ally as opposed to Hitler's opponent. And I think that that kind of ideology um, was uh, tremendously dangerous uh, to not only the United States and Great Britain, but, but to the whole world. And I think that, you know, going forward, uh, Obviously, it would be great if students in high school or, or college could learn about media literacy and looking at sources and, and figuring out uh, which sources to take seriously and how to verify information, but also possibly because of the way that these very wealthy individuals tend to push right-wing politics along with their, um, through their media yeah. outlets, we might want to want we might need more publicly funded uh, media as well. Catherine Olmsted, thank you so much for joining me this hour and coming back on the program. Of course, thank you for having me. Catherine Olmsted is a historian. She teaches at UC Davis and is the author, most recently, of the newspaper Axis: Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler, which is published by Yale University Press at AgainstTheGrain.org. You can find a link. To that book, her other books include Right Out of California. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.